we come to Christmas Eve morning on this fourth Sunday of Advent, I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Luke is the third book in the New Testament, so once you get through the the minor prophets um, and get into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you find yourself in Acts or Romans, go back just a little bit to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. This passage that we read this morning is the annunciation of Christ's birth to Mary for Gabriel came to her and told her all that was going to take place. It's also a very familiar story to many. And so I always say Christmas and Easter are both the easiest and the hardest Sundays to come up with a sermon for. But I hope that as we read these words, we can read them with a particular lens this morning. Because the intent is these are good tidings of great joy for all the people. And we'll hear more about that tonight as well. But I have a a thesis statement, if you will, that I'd like us to use throughout the sermon with a call and response. And the thesis statement is this, God fulfills God's promises. Say that with me, God fulfills God's promises. Now, I don't intend for you to say that if you don't believe that it is true. This isn't a, a forced conscription into call and response. This is to be a declaration of what we hold to be true, what we believe with all our hearts. And so if you believe those words, that God fulfills God's promises, I invite you every time I say, Merry Christmas, I invite you to simply respond with those words, God fulfills God's promises. So let's try that one more time. Merry Christmas, God fulfills God's promises. Because this is the reason for the season, this is what Christmas is all about, is the fulfillment of God's promises from long ago, being born into a manger in Bethlehem. But it starts first with Gabriel coming to Mary. And so as we prepare our hearts to read Luke 1, 26 through 38, as we attune ourselves to be attentive to the Holy Spirit for the leading and guiding of the living God, will you pray with me? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, We remember that Christmas is about the light of the world coming into the darkness, that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So we pray this morning that you may dwell among us richly, that you may be our light, that you may illumine the Scriptures to us by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit, that your Word may be living and active, that you may dwell in our hearts richly and clearly. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray your blessing upon it, trusting that you do fulfill your promises and that the word of the Lord shall not return void or empty. So fill our hearts with your hope, with your light, and with your good news as we remember this Christmas time that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words 
and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How are you at keeping your promises? I know at Christmas time, parents have gotten gifts for their children. I know one thing, you never promise what gift you're going to give, just in case you're wrong. And you don't want to spoil the suspense. But how do we do at keeping our promises? Maybe it's gifts, maybe it's other things. I would venture that every single one of us here, at some point or another, received a promise. Something was promised to us that something would be done or given, and it didn't happen. We don't always keep our promises. Sometimes our word fails, and we have to go back and admit that we, we didn't do what we said we would do in the manner it was meant to be done in the time that we said we would do it. It happens to us, and we make it happen to other people. Times where we just don't keep to our word. Our promises are made, but it makes us almost cautious about how many promises and how big of promises we want to make, because what if we're wrong? In the best-case scenarios, it's because circumstance prevented us from fulfilling our words. Something unexpected happened. But there's only so many times you can be late for curfew and say that the tire went flat before it's no longer believable. Sometimes promises are made flippantly without any real thought or intention of following through. It just seemed like the right thing to say in the moment. So we learn not always to trust people's promises. And maybe we've learned to make small promises that'll be easier to keep. And yet we live in a world where we believe in big promises, like marriage vows, or even for each one of us here, for baptismal vows that we make as a congregation to to support each one of the members here at North Holland. Sometimes we don't want to make big promises. And as I've learned over the last few years, there is wisdom in under-committing and over-delivering. And yet, when we come to Christmas morning, tomorrow morning, we remember that God fulfills all of his promises. Promise, as a verb or as a noun, occurs 222 times in Scripture both as I make you a promise or I promise to you, 222 times. And an even higher, maybe loftier, more theologically weighty word, covenant, occurs 302 times in Scripture, both as a verb and as a noun, 
of God making his covenant with God's people and of the people holding and saying that they will keep their side of the covenant. And if you read through all 222 and 302 examples of promise and covenant being used, what you will find is that there's a lot of correction happening, times where we didn't keep our side of the bargain, where we didn't keep our promise, where different people have to admit that they didn't hold their word. And yet, today's text reminds us of just why we say, Merry Christmas. God fulfills God's promises. See, everything in Luke 1, 26 through 38 is intentional and deliberate and direct. None of the wording that Gabriel uses to convey to Mary what's about to happen, none of it is random, none of it is fluff or filler. It's all intentional, pointing back to Old Testament promises that are now being fulfilled. Because Merry Christmas God fulfills God's promises. And even the angel who is sent to Mary to give this good news to her is Gabriel, Gavriel, meaning mighty one of God, a strong, strong name for an important figure. I knew a Gabriel in high school, and he actually resented his name because he said it sounded too feminine. And yet the meaning of the name is mighty one of God. Sometimes Bible names aren't exactly what they sound like. I actually am still waiting for someone to name their child Nimrod. Because in Genesis 10, verse 8 and 9, we're told that Nimrod is a mighty hunter, a warrior. And yet for all of you who have tree stands and deer blinds and duck blinds, none of you have named your kids Nimrod yet. That's just a little bit disappointing. Yet Gabriel, the mighty one of God, is sent to give this news to Mary. Now, now, earlier in the chapter, Gabriel went to Zechariah, the father of John, John the Baptist. And one thing that in verse 19 that was told to Zechariah was Gabriel says, I have stood in God's presence. Meaning Gabriel is a pretty high up angel. He truly is a mighty one of God. Because what we understand and know from visions like Isaiah 6 and some different passages in Ezekiel and Daniel and the Revelation vision God's throne and the presence of God is not a casual place. You don't just walk in and out, and even the angels shield themselves with their wings from God's holy presence. And so not just anyone, not just any angel, not just any person walks in and out of the presence of God, and yet Gabriel, the angel that is sent with this good news for Mary, is one who has stood in God's presence. This is the most direct messenger that you could ask for. Gabriel, one who has stood in God's presence, a mighty one of God. But where does God send this mighty angel to? To Nazareth, a town in Galilee, a town that's unimportant. And to Joseph, Mary's betrothed husband, is a descendant of David, but not like one who would expect to be taking the throne anytime soon. Now, there's a fair amount of people. If you look through our church directory, there's, there's many different last names, but there's a fair few Dutch last names, right? I don't think any of us here expect to be told that we have suddenly become the king or queen of the Netherlands. I just don't expect it to happen. Because, sure, we might be able to trace some lineage, but we're not like the direct line. 
Joseph is not waiting for one of his brothers to die so that he can become king. A descendant of David, yes, but not anyone of noteworthy repute. Not anyone of high status, just a carpenter in Nazareth, a town that's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. There's a commentator, William Hendrickson, who is one of the driest, dullest commentators that you can ever read. I really like him. (laughs) And we're not going to read the whole commentary because then we wouldn't probably have time to get it done before the Christmas Eve service tonight. But I think I found in Luke 1 the only time that William Hendrickson uses an exclamation point and actually sounds excited or exciting. Hendrickson writes this, And I hope Hendrickson's not actually somebody's cousin, because I'm always a little bit worried about that. Hendrickson writes this about Luke 1. This conception of Mary, moreover, will be unique, such as had never before occurred and will never again take place. It is to happen within the womb of a virgin, the mother-to-be to whom the promise of the incarnation of the world's Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, must be delivered, is living in Rome, certainly. No! not the center of power in that current day and age. In Jerusalem, then, the highest religious city. No, in Nazareth, a little Galilean town by some so lightly esteemed, as John 1.46 reminds us, never even mentioned in the Old Testament, and the womb that will carry this greatest of all treasures, the Prince of Peace for all the nations, carried certainly in the womb of that of a princess? No, It is that of a virgin pledged to be married to the village carpenter. Everything about this is different, and yet it holds to the same fulfillment of one thing. Merry Christmas. God fulfills God's promises. All of this is told to Mary that a descendant, that Joseph, a descendant of David, and Mary living in Galilee, that Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High, will be born unto them. This goes way back. The fulfillment of these promises explained about the throne of his father David goes back to 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, David is inquiring of the Lord if he should build God's house, and the prophet Nathan is sent with a message to David saying, no, you're not the one to do this. But, But hear these words and pay attention not to what David and and Solomon and Saul and Nathan have to do with it, but pay attention to the promises that God is making. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now hold there for a second. We can understand that Solomon built a temple in this day and age, but the throne of his kingdom will last forever. Does this include the time when there was no one on the throne because the temple was destroyed and the people were in exile? Does this include the times when the people had wandered away from God and were not worshiping the Lord in his temple, were not offering sacrifices to the Almighty God? Does this include all of the times when the people were hopeless and destitute? 
And yet God makes big promises and says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Picking up at verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. This is starting to sound a little bit more like Jesus. Now here's for the people. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. God made big promises to David that his house and his kingdom will endure forever, that his throne will be established forever. And there is no person who could occupy that throne forever. And yet so here in Luke 1, 26, when the angel is so careful, when Gabriel mentions in verse 32 that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, this is a signal to Mary and to any other Israelite who would hear these words that God's promises are being fulfilled, that God has not forgotten his word, that God will keep his word, that God did not fall asleep while the people prayed, that God did not walk away when the people were disobedient. But truly, Merry Christmas, God fulfills God's promises. Who can endure in the throne of the kingdom forever? It has to be different. No earthly kingdom lasts forever. It has to be different. Psalm 89, written by Ethan the Ezraite, says it like this, recapping on the covenant promise that God made to David. I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers, and he will call out, call out to me, you are my father, my God, the rock, my savior, and I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth, and I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. Mary would know this psalm. This psalm that speaks of my son, my firstborn, that my covenant love with him will never fail, that I will establish his line forever. And so it is true with David. We can follow the line and the lineage, but it is fulfilled in Christ, born in Bethlehem to a couple from Nazareth in Galilee. All of these things that are said to Mary reckon great, great language from the Old Testament. The Son of the Most High. You were to call him Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. And all of this with the prefix, do not be afraid. One of the most repeated phrases in all of the New Testament is do not be afraid. Because the assurance we have is quite simply that God will not forget us or forsake us, but that Merry Christmas, God fulfills God's promises. Mary's response to all this, how would you respond this lofty language that would hearken all of your Old Testament knowledge of all the covenants and promises made to be said that this is going to happen to you. How would you respond? Mary says, how can this be since I am a virgin? What's fascinating about that with all of the work we could do in, in understanding Mary's response is that 
She doesn't question any of God's promises being fulfilled. Nothing about the throne of his father David or the son of the Most High, none of that. But simply the question of how is this going to happen? And the angel tells her as much that this is different. In Greek mythology, it's not uncommon for one of the Greek gods to come down and and spend time among people and conceive children. But the way this is described, the way Luke so precisely crafts his gospel, the way he was inspired to write this, to set it apart from any kind of mythology, is to say that this is different. This is truly a virgin birth under God's power. This is God's Holy One, born to the Virgin Mary, who simply said, how will this be? Not with doubt of if it would be, but how. One of Gabriel's explanations to to Mary is referencing Elizabeth, her relative, who is going to have a child in her old age. This would hearken back to another Old Testament story when someone of reasonably old age had a child. Do you remember who this was? I'm serious. Sarah. When Abraham and Sarah, Sarah in her old age, and that's why Isaac, Abraham and Sarah's son, is called Isaac, which means laughter, because Sarah laughed at the idea of her having a child. Her exact words in Genesis 18:12 are, "After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure?" And then the Lord said to Abram, "Why did Sarah laugh? Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is there anything too difficult for God? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son." And God fulfilled God's promise to Abraham and Sarah. And God fulfills God's promise to the people of Israel with Jesus Christ being born into the world. Down to the letter of all of the prophecies made about Christ, the imagery of Isaiah and other prophets explodes in the descriptions of who Jesus is. No word from God will ever fail, says Gabriel to Mary in Luke 1, verse 37. No word from God will ever fail. This is the good news, that God's promises are kept and that the salvation that the people longed for and waited for and probably at times of exile wondered if it was true, if it was going to happen, all of those words from God will not fail because they would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem. Now this gives us a few decades before Jesus is on the cross before the Lord Jesus Christ took on our sin, died upon the cross for our sins, for our mistakes, and rose again on the third day so that he may offer us eternal life. All of this story in Luke 1 is a few decades before the cross. But the word to Mary that Gabriel brought directly from God is the reminder that no word from God will ever fail, but that all that was promised, all that was said, will happen. And Mary's response, after Gabriel maybe answered some of her questions, maybe left her wondering about some other things, in verse 38 is, I am the Lord's servant, she answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. This is the promise that was made to Abraham and Sarah, that their child was born, that Gabriel uses the imagery of. In Genesis 12, 
the, the call of Abraham, the covenant that was established between God and Abraham, is this. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, Abraham wasn't called, the people of Israel weren't called just for them to be blessed themselves. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and then this is carried on through the church. That it is not just our blessing to receive, but it is also our blessing to share, to be a blessing to others. We soak it up and we soak it in, but not just to keep it to ourselves but that we remember that all of God's promises would be fulfilled. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. This is a statement, a declaration of faith and trust that Merry Christmas, God keeps God's promises. Promises like from Ezekiel 37, when the people are being chastised for turning away from God, And in verse 23, the Lord says, They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses, for I will save them from their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. God never let go. God never gave up. God never walked away from God's promises. Now, depending on what's going on in in your soul right now. As one year closes out, and we'll leave some of that for Pastor Audrey next week to talk about New Year's. And yet with all of everything that happened, it's important to remember that God keeps God's promises, but God doesn't keep promises that God never made. God doesn't keep the promises that God never made. God never promised that it wouldn't be difficult. God never promised that there wouldn't be hardship and heartbreak. God never promised that sometimes it wouldn't get worse before it got better. God didn't promise that we would be exempt from suffering. But God did promise to never leave us or forsake us. To be with us always, even to the end of the age. To dwell with us in our pain. To send us a great high priest who is not unfamiliar with our sufferings, but took on suffering for us that Jesus Christ came into the world to walk among us, not far off and distant, but near. God fulfills all of God's promises. And this is the beginning of the promise unfolding before our eyes with Jesus Christ being born in such circumstances that even William Hendrickson uses exclamation points in his commentary. This is the good news of Jesus Christ being born into the world. We celebrate that God keeps God's promises. And we keep our eyes open for the ways in which God provides, in the ways in which God shows up. Maybe small things like what we saw on Thursday, but also the larger things. The larger ways in which God shows up. We need reminders. That's why we celebrate Christmas every year. If we've literally followed Jesus' life, we'd only celebrate Christmas every 33 years, and that's just too far apart. We come to the table this morning to communion because we remember 
But tomorrow we celebrate Merry Christmas. God fulfills God's promises. Keeps fulfills. I'm sorry, I switched the word on you halfway through, didn't I? (laughs) Keeps fulfills. We could use all kinds of different words there. The point is that no word from God will ever fail. And we remember that in this supper, this holy communion table, that God kept God's promises. Now, in the Reformed tradition, we celebrate three aspects of communion, remembrance, communion, and hope. Remembrance, communion, and hope. And today, we remember that God remembers us, that God did not fall asleep while we were praying through the night, that God did not walk away when things got dire, that God did not abandon us when we maybe abandoned God for a short season. And yet that God remembers us, that God yearns to draw him, to draw us to himself. We remember that God is with us this day. We also celebrate communion. Often we reflect on the communion that we have with one another through Christ, with God. But we remember in Christmas time that God yearns to be with us, that God dwells with us, that the entire Focal point of Christmas is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that God dwells among us, that God chose to have communion with us, that Jesus Christ sought to walk in our midst, to have the same dust on his sandals that we have on ours, that Jesus is not far off and distant, but that Christ dwells with you, that Christ longs to be close to you. We remember that God remembers us. We celebrate that God longs to have communion with us and did dwell among us. And we have hope that no word from God will ever fail. Not a blind optimism, not a wishy-washy promise made, but the foundation of hope that was proven in the words that Gabriel gave to Mary, that all of God's promises would be kept, that all of God's covenant would be fulfilled, and that we would be blessed to be a blessing to all peoples. So as we come to this table... We invite you to come in remembrance, communion, and hope that God remembers you. God remembers the day when you confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, says Romans 10.9. We come to celebrate with the bread and the cup, Christ's body and blood for us, for our sins and for our salvation. As said earlier, we invite all who are a part of Christ's body to come, share with us, For this is not a table that is exclusive, but it is for all of God's people. We'll celebrate by intinction this morning, which simply means um, we'll have the balcony and the back row start coming up the center aisle. There'll be a station of elders on either side. And you'll take the bread from the basket and dip it into the cup. When you take the bread, the elder will say to you, this is Christ's body broken for you. And when you dip the bread into the cup, the elder will say to you, this is Christ's blood shed for you. I've been asked before, what's a fitting response for those words? Thanks be to God. If you're looking for words to say, thanks be to God, or praise to you, O Christ. Mm -hmm. Any others? Amen. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) We invite you to take communion and then return down the center aisles to your seats. Um, We also have both in the the roaming basket and here, Pastor Audrey and I will serve a a dairy, wheat, gluten, soy, and nut-free bread. So if there's any dietary concerns you have, please come to us because we seek to accommodate all God's people. As a sign of hospitality, please only take the gluten, dairy, wheat, soy, and nut-free bread if that is your dietary need. Come. These are the gifts of God for the people of God.
Would you pray with me? God, holy and right it is, and our joyful duty to give thanks to you at all times and in all places. You are our Lord, our creator, the almighty and everlasting God. You created heaven with all its hosts and the earth with all its plenty. You have given us life and being and preserve us by your providence. But you have shown us the fullness of your love in sending into the world your son, Jesus Christ, the eternal word, the one made flesh for us and for our salvation. For the precious gift of this mighty savior who has reconciled us to you, we praise and bless you, O God. With your whole church on earth and with all the company of heaven, we worship and adore your glorious name. Holy Lord, you are the God of power and might. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Most righteous God, we remember in this supper the perfect sacrifice offered once on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ for the sin of the whole world. In the joy of his resurrection, in an expectation of his coming again, we offer ourselves to you as holy and living sacrifices as we remember the mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, but Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Send your Holy Spirit upon us, we pray, that the bread which we break and the cup which we bless may be to us the communion of the body and of the blood of Christ. Grant that being joined together in him, we may attain to the unity of the faith and grow up in all things into Christ our Lord. And as this grain has been gathered from many fields into one loaf and these grapes from many hills into one cup, grant, O Lord, that your whole church may soon be gathered from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. Even so, Maranatha, 